The opioid epidemic seems to be something we're all concerned about these days, with new newspaper headlines on a nearly daily basis describing the tragic nature of the problem. There's been a lot of reporting recently about who is to blame for the opioid epidemic and whether or not drug companies who produce some of the opioids can be held responsible. There seems to be less reporting, though, on what's being done about the epidemic and whether or not we're having any success in bringing about change. So where did this epidemic come from and what is actually being done? That's our topic for today. I'm your host, Matt Fox, from the Boston University School of Public Health, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from the researchers who are deeply involved in this work. So today we're going to be talking about the opioid epidemic, and to do so, I am joined by two guests today, Dr. Magdalena Serdaf and Dr. Noah Kravchik from New York University. Welcome to Epidemiology Counts, Magda and Noah. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks. It's great to be here. So let's jump right in. Um, so Magda, I want to start with you. So we have heard so much about opioids in the news. Uh, it seems to be that there are, are stories uh, coming out on a nearly daily basis. And yet for, for many of us, there's a lot of confusion about what we're even talking about. So are we, are we talking about prescription drugs? Are we talking about street drugs when we talk about the opioid epidemic? Can you just explain for us what, what the opioids are and what this crisis is all about? Sure. So opioids actually involve, involve both prescription drugs and street drugs. So they're a class of drugs that include uh, the illegal drug heroin, uh, they also include pain relievers available legally, uh, such as oxycodone, Vicodin, uh, mor morphine. Uh, and finally, they include synthetic opioids like fentanyl, which traditionally was used to treat severe pain like cancer pain, uh, but more recently has been made illegally and combined with other drugs like cocaine and heroin that are available in the street market. Uh, the opioids, the, the reason why they're so addictive is because uh, opioids actually imitate the effect of natural endorphins. And so they can, they can create this feeling of euphoria that can really lead to repeated, uh, repeated desire to use these kinds of drugs. Uh, but we also know that the more you use these drugs, the more likely it is that you can become dependent and uh, that stopping using these drugs can cause severe problems of withdrawal and cravings. Um, so there's, there's a real concern about the addictive potential of these drugs. Thanks. And so, um, no, maybe you can tell us a little bit about why this has become such a big problem. I mean, I don't, uh, as I sort of think back, I, I we've dealt with epidemics of other drugs in the past, and yet we haven't really dealt with a, an opioid uh, epidemic in the same way. And we, we, we hear so much on the news about addiction. Um, and Magnus just told us a little bit about why these drugs are so addictive. But, but they're also, you know, we, we, we know that other drugs and alcohol can also be highly addictive. So what, what is it about the opioids that makes them such a such a big problem? Yeah, absolutely. So it's definitely true that drug and alcohol addiction and even addiction to opioids have been a problem uh, in the U.S. for a very long time. 
What's really changed now is the prevalence of opioid addiction. So how many people are affected by these conditions, um, as well as how deadly opioid addiction has become. So just to give you a sense, over 2 million people in the US are estimated to have an opioid use disorder. And this is about double the rate that was recorded in the early 2000s, so less than two decades ago. Uh, in addition to more people using opioids, opioids have also become much more available in illicit markets, especially um, in recent years, and they've become much more potent. So may, these opioids are now much more deadly than they used to be. Um, and so we are having many more overdoses than we've had in the past. So in addition to an increase in opioid use, we've really seen many other public health consequences of use of these drugs included including increases in emergency department visits, increases in rates of neonatal abstinence syndrome, new cases of HIV, hepatitis C, and of course, a very large increase in overdose deaths. So overdoses have tripled um, in the last two decades. And just in 2017, we had over 70,000 people die of overdoses. And 67% of those were accounted for by opioids. So you really see that this has become uh, a very lethal condition in the U.S. in recent years. I mean, those numbers are, are absolutely staggering. And, you know, as, a, as I, I keep alluding to, it's something that I think most of our listeners will have, will have you know, have familiarity with just through uh, turning on the, the local news or listening to, to stories on the radio. Um, what is it, though, that specifically makes this a, an epidemic? I mean, I, we're used to thinking about epidemics of, in, of infectious diseases. Um, what, what, why do we call this uh, an epidemic? And we, we didn't necessarily call, you know, we don't call alcohol use, uh, abuse, excuse me, a, a, an epidemic. So when we refer to this as an opioid epidemic, it's really due to this fast rise in opioid use and deaths um, that have developed that I just described. And these are just numbers that have far exceeded typical rates that we've seen in these conditions previously, historically in the US and even around the world. So unlike many other substance use conditions that um, prevalences might rise and, and go down um, pretty consistently over time, opioids have really um, risen very rapidly in the last couple of uh, decades, as well as numbers of overdose deaths. So just to give you a picture, the 70,000 overdose deaths that I mentioned, um, that is now the leading cause of injury death in the country. It's exceeded the number of deaths by motor vehicle crashes, uh, suicides, as well as deaths by firearms. And another statistic that often kind of gets uh, to the understanding of how severe this opioid overdose epidemic has become is that opioid deaths in 2017 alone exceeded all American fatalities at the peak of the AIDS epidemic, as well as all American fatalities uh, from the Vietnam War. So really this is, has reached what we are calling epidemic proportions. Wow, uh, unbelievable. And, and you know, what's interesting about those, those numbers you just quoted is that um, you compared it to deaths in war and deaths from the AIDS epidemic, which both um, were also um, mortality that affected people in their, in their, um, you know, their middle of life, um, unlike things that tends to affect people in, in older age. Um, and therefore, you know, anything that is, is harm, it, that is, leading to death in people's prime earning years also tends to affect families and, and children. Um, but 
but I actually want to go back to something you just said, which is you, you said, um, you know, this is clearly a problem in the U.S. And you also mentioned around the world. Are other countries experiencing epidemics um, like we are? So not absolutely um, not to the same extent. So the only other country that has really seen a very sharp rise in overdose deaths is Canada. Uh, and that's also due to similar patterns um, that relate to increases in use of prescription opioids, as well as increases in heroin and the availability of fentanyl in the illicit market. Um, and there are some, um, there is some reporting about some overdose deaths that might be higher than usual in some other regions uh, in Europe, uh, but this has not been a problem to the same extent as we are seeing here. And we're, we're really hoping that this isn't something that also becomes very prevalent in other places around the world, but something that we're definitely looking into. Okay, so I'm, I'm gonna wanna come back to that because I'm actually really curious to, to, to know any insights that you have on why it is that, that this has been such a problem in the US and not elsewhere. But before we, 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 we go down that road, I'm, you mentioned fentanyl um, and the availability of fentanyl. For the listeners who aren't familiar, I mean, I think most people probably are familiar with things like morphine and, and things like heroin, but might be a little bit less clear on what fentanyl is. Can you just explain to us what that is? Sure, so fentanyl is a synthetic opioid, so it is synthesized, um, not, it doesn't occur naturally, it's synthesized in a lab, and it was historically uh, used to treat very severe pain, uh, usually during or after surgeries in particular. Uh, but now in recent years, we've seen a wave of illicitly manufactured fentanyl that's being uh, transported into the U.S. And it's often laced into other illicit drugs, um, mostly heroin, but also cocaine, as well as methamphetamine and other drugs. And this is also a, a different type of opioid, but it's much more potent and therefore much more dangerous in terms of its lethality than even heroin is. So this has really contributed to the very sharp increase in overdose deaths over the last three or four years that we've seen because of this infiltration of fentanyl into the illicit drug market. Yeah, and I think uh, to the extent that people hear about fentanyl, they may have heard of um, stories about people uh, becoming um, uh, uh, ingesting small amounts of, of fentanyl um, unintentionally. Um, is, that, is that accurate or are those stories kind of overblown? Absolutely. So it's definitely, we have many um, research studies and accounts of people who encountered fentanyl and it, whether through a drug screen or they had an overdose and, and learned that they had taken fentanyl when they didn't know that this, is, this was what they were taking. They might have been trying to use heroin or cocaine um, and that heroin or cocaine was laced with fentanyl. Um, there are also some people who do seek out fentanyl. It's an, uh, it is a stronger opioid uh, and so some people choose to use that but generally this is not what we're encountering uh, especially during overdoses because part of the problem is that people develop certain intolerances to opioids. And so they can use a certain amount of heroin, for example, that they're used to taking. And so if a little bit of fentanyl is laced into a drug and they don't know that it's there, that's when an overdose can occur because they're actually taking a much higher dose than they're expecting to. I see, okay. So, so it, it really is a much stronger drug. Um, so can, can we go back a little bit and sort of get a bit of the big picture about how the whole opioid 
epidemic or crisis, as people also tend to refer to it, how it all kind of started in the U.S. and how it's evolved? Sure. So we often talk about the opioid epidemic as having a few different phases. The first is what we call the prescription pain reliever phase. So this is really what um, people are talking about a lot as starting in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And this was a time when there was a very sharp increase in prescribing of opioid pain relievers in medical practice. And then these, these prescription drugs became much more available, um, both through medical means as well as diverted through the illicit market. And during this time, this is when we really start seeing a very large increase in misuse of prescription opioids as well as overdoses from these drugs. Then we move into what we are calling the heroin phase, and this starts to be described maybe in the late 2000s, early 2010s. And at this time, prescription pain reliever misuse actually starts to level off a bit, but at the same time, there's a very large increase in heroin use and heroin-related mortality. And this is often explained um, both due to a combination of illicit heroin entering markets where they're previously hadn't been heroin, but there was a growing demand for it due to people becoming more addicted to prescription pain relievers. And also the price of heroin became much cheaper. And so it's thought that many people who are started, were starting to use prescription opioids actually switched over to using more potent heroin. And because heroin is a stronger opioid, many more overdoses were starting to occur from heroin use than there were even during the prescription opioid phase. Then um, we move into what is known as the fentanyl phase. And as I just described, fentanyl is a much stronger potent opioid that started making its way into the illicit market, we think around late 2013. And this has really contributed to a much faster rise in overdose deaths just in the last few years um, due to its lacing into other drugs in the market. So just to give you a sense, deaths from synthetic opioids like fentanyl and its analogs, they doubled just from 2015 to 2016. And then they rose by another half between 2016 and 2017. And uh, even some people are actually starting to talk about a fourth phase um, of the epidemic that we are currently starting to see actually many more overdose deaths that are involving stimulants. So we're seeing many more deaths that involve the combination of both, an, both mm -hmm. opioids and cocaine, for example, or opioids and methamphetamine. So we're still looking into that and how that's evolving in, in recent years. I, I was I was aware of some of that, but I, I think a lot of that was new to me, and in particular that fourth phase that you talked about. That is something that I I hadn't heard about, and I expect that um, that'll be something that our listeners will be hearing more about as time goes on. So, so Magda, maybe I, I shift to you for a little bit. Can you give us a sense for who the who the epidemic is affecting? Yeah, so that's something that's really interesting because traditionally when we saw problems for, with opioids before, particularly with heroin, it really used to be a problem that was concentrated uh, in minority neighborhoods, minority low-income neighborhoods in urban areas. And so, you know, the problem, the drug problems were really considered an urban problem. Uh, but, but with the opioid crisis, particularly at the start of the opioid crisis, it, it really took a very different profile. Um, and it, it started out really affecting people in rural areas, in suburban areas, and affecting whites more than other groups. Uh, white young people, 
uh, for example, particularly age, young adults, uh, ages 25 to 44. And we don't completely understand why that happened, but, we, but our hypothesis is really that, you know, the root of this epidemic started with uh, overuse of inappropriate use of prescription opioids. And we know that uh, the pharmaceutical industry was more likely to target certain areas, uh, particularly areas where uh, doctors were more likely to prescribe opioids, uh, areas where there, there might have been more patients uh, with pain problems. Uh, but also we know that whites were more likely to be prescribed opioids than blacks and Hispanics. And so we saw really with the expansion of the use of prescription opioids, uh, we saw real concentration in rural, suburban areas and with whites. However, more recently, uh, with this new wave, particularly with the growth of uh, use of heroin and more recently with the growth of use of synthetics like fentanyl, we are actually seeing more deaths uh, from opiate overdoses among blacks. And those really primarily involve heroin and fentanyl. So the nature of the epidemic as, you know, as the patterns of use change, as the types of drugs evolved changed, so does the, the demographic profile of the epidemic. Uh, but then if we move beyond just looking at demographic groups, I think it's really important to think about social groups that are particularly affected by this problem. And so uh, one group that really, I think, deserves a lot of attention is justice-involved individuals. So uh, particularly uh, people who've been incarcerated, who had a, you know, who were using opioids before going into, before being incarcerated, had to withdraw completely while in prison or in jail, and then have, and then, and then are released, uh, right, with absolutely no tolerance uh, for opioids, uh, and then are released into the same kind of environment they might start using opioids again with no tolerance and be much more likely to overdose. Uh, so really trying to understand that population, what makes them more vulnerable, and how can we connect them with the types of services that they need to address that risk is really important. Um, yeah, so that's, um, you touched on something that I think I want to uh, dig a little deeper on, which is you 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 talked about the potential for overdose. And you were speaking specifically in that case about, um, you know, justice-involved individuals coming out and, and having a low tolerance. But but it seems like the, the major problem that, uh, or one of the major um, issues that we're dealing with for the opioid crisis is the is the large number of, of overdoses that occur, and, and Noah told us about the number of deaths. Um, one of the things that I keep hearing, or at least I think I'm hearing, is that the, the opioid crisis has actually led to a, the, the reduction in overall life expectancy in the U.S. that we have been seeing, or at least a stagnation. Um, is, there, is there truth to this? I mean, is this, is this a big part of the explanation for why life expectancy in the U.S. has either stagnated or declined? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. And I think it's actually a kind of, you know, there are opinions on, on both sides. Uh, but, but we do know that uh, life expectancy has gone down. So for example, uh, between 2016 and 2017, life expectancy declined by a tenth of a year. Uh, so we, we've seen in the past about three to four years a decline in life expectancy. At the same time, we've seen that uh, the proportion of deaths that are related to opioids have increased as Noah uh, explained before. Uh, and so there is likely a connection between the two. If we, if, we, if we look at the data, it does seem to suggest that uh, the opioid crisis probably contributed 
in part uh, to the decline in life expectancy, but not among everybody. I would say that it likely contributed to a decline in life expectancy among whites in particular. So we know that um, among white men and women, overdoses from drugs, uh, including opioids, but also including other drugs, were the single largest contributor to the decline in life expectancy between 1990 and 2015. However, among other racial ethnic groups, there were other causes that were leading contributors to the decline of life expectancy. For example, among black men, it was cancer and cardiovascular disease. So I would say, yes, and it depends. It's <laughs> um, part of the story, but it's not the whole exactly. story. Exactly. Yeah. And presumably, um, uh, I, my understanding is that that, um, that suicide and, and gun violence is also a, a part of that story, something that we talked about on previous podcasts. Um, so so to, to put this kind of into the, the, the context of, of where it all started, um, uh, it seems to me from when I, you know, from my following this, that it's, it's, a, it's a pretty complicated story as to how we, we got to the state that we're in. Um, and if you just follow this based on the news, it seems like the, the place that everybody is focused on is the role that the drug companies, Purdue Pharma is in the news quite a lot, but there Johnson & Johnson and others have also been extensively in the news for playing a role in driving the epidemic. Um, and yet it's also not totally clear to me exactly how, um, you know, whether that is the entire story or not. So Noah, I wonder if you could sort of tell us a little bit more of the story of how this epidemic came to be and how drug companies have been involved in this. And and I would just add, can you tell us anything that you know about whether this explains some of the difference between what we see in the U.S. and what we've seen in, in Europe? Sure. So I think you're right. I think um, it's true to say that the evolution of the opiate epidemic is really a very complex story. And for people who are actually interested in reading more about this, I would recommend an excellent book by Sam Quinones that's called Dreamland. And this book really walks through the roots of this epidemic and multiple factors that really led to the rise of opioid use throughout much of the country. But I can try and sum up a few of the major components that have been fundamental to the development of this epidemic as we see it here in the US. So first of all, there really is uh, now really no question that big pharma played a large role in instigating the opioid epidemic. So this was most obviously done through a case um, related to the release of the prescription pain reliever known as Oxycontin, um, which the generic name is Oxycodone. And this was released in 1996 and, and produced by Purdue Pharma and was followed by a subsequent heavy marketing of this drug as well as other pain relievers uh, into the medical uh, world. So it's, it's known that even though the company Purdue Pharma knew about the strong addiction potential of oxycodone, it really falsely advertised this drug to be non-addictive as well as extremely effective in the treatment of pain, um, neither which was really accurate. And uh, these pharmaceutical companies, they ran very large and calculated marketing campaigns, often targeting primary care physicians, as well as other types of doctors, um, and really providing payments, um, as well as incentives to promote the use of these drugs for both acute and chronic pain patients. And this is what really led to unprecedented use of such medications in the US um, that we didn't really see happen in other places um, around the world, even though there are some indications that um, these marketing campaigns are also happening elsewhere. Um, and Magda actually did research, uh, really interesting work that showed that um, the types and the number of payments that 
certain physicians received uh, for opioid related marketing was directly associated with how much pain relievers they would prescribe to patients. So these marketing tactics really did work. So there really does seem to be a direct relationship there between the amount of, of marketing and pushing these drugs that the drug companies were doing and the, and the epidemic itself. But I, <coughs> excuse me, but I do wonder, so is it, I mean, is that the only story? Because, I, you know, whenever I, I think about um, any epidemic, I always think that these things are often fairly complicated. And I wonder, are there other things that drove this epidemic other than the very clear and obvious role that the drug companies played in this? Yeah, definitely. So absolutely, there are many factors that went into creating the open up opioid epidemic as we see it today. Um, of course, no, nothing is so simple. While Big Pharma definitely um, played a very important role and, and their actions were absolutely unethical and how they uh, drove the large influx of opioids into the medical field, this really interacted with many other factors that contributed to the massive prevalence of use of these opioids across the country. So for example, um, another factor that was very important was the fact that there was really lack of oversight regarding the abuse potential of these drugs by regulatory agencies mm. that exist, that are you know really supposed to mitigate some of um, some of these issues, such as you know whether an, a drug is addictive uh, in patients that take it, as well as there was really no regulation of the marketing tactics that were used by these big pharmaceutical companies to try and get doctors to prescribe them. And that's something that's often discussed today is something that really needs to change. Of course, there were also many actors that took advantage of this growing misuse and demand for opioids around the country. So this ranged from corrupt medical providers through what became known as pill mills. So these were um, places where doctors really prescribed opioid pain relievers um, in a way that was not medically necessary, um, as well as, of course, drug, traffic, tra drug trafficking groups that really took advantage um, of the fact that people were becoming addicted to these opioids to introduce uh, pure, cheaper, and easily delivered heroin into the U.S. market. Another big piece of this, um, and many scholars have been talking about this, is that we also think that in addition to these factors, some important um, factors that contributed to the opioid epidemic is really the growing suffering uh, from economic deprivation and social isolation that is present in many parts of the country. So, uh, and we talk about this usually in, in areas that have been most affected by deindustrialization, de um, such as the Rust Belt states. Um, so this, as well as a changing medical culture around pain and the need to really treat pain more, um, more severely with such medications, um, really combined with these pharmaceutical actions to lead to where we are today. So it, in some ways, it really does seem like a, a perfect storm kind of situation where you've got the coming together of um, a highly addictive drug. You've got uh, practices around marketing these drugs that are are unethical and and um, highly misleading. But you've also got um, economic instability that that creates the the conditions under which these uh, addictions can thrive. Does this explain why, at least to my understanding, that the and you kind of alluded to it that the the, the distribution of this problem has not been uniform throughout the United States. Um, as we mentioned, it, it hasn't been a nearly as big a problem in, in Europe. Does, does this 
do these conditions explain why it's it's uh, been more prevalent in some areas of the country than others? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say there's really a combination of factors, and, and this is because of the very complicated nature of uh, drug trafficking, really. So really what we're, where we're seeing the biggest areas of that are impacted by opioids today are a combination of these regions, such as the Rust Belt states. So for example, places like West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, um, that were really affected by some of these conditions that are described as uh, part of these uh, diseases of despair, um, as many have termed them. But also uh, many areas have actually been very impacted by the opioid overdose epidemic, largely due to trafficking routes of fentanyl in particular. So as we mentioned, fentanyl is a much more potent drug and it didn't become distributed evenly throughout the United States. So another area that has been very impacted by overdose deaths is actually the Northeast of the country. So places like Maryland, Delaware, Washington, DC, New Hampshire, Maine, they're experiencing very high rates of overdose deaths, um, even though they don't really fit into the same characteristics as some of those Rust Belt areas that were largely where the opioid pain reliever prescribing uh, really took off. Yeah, and I, I know here in Massachusetts, um, obviously we have a, a big problem here in in Boston, but there's also been quite a problem out heading out towards the, the Cape, which is sort of not a... a, a, a big um, population center. And so it, it really does seem to me it's quite different from other epidemics in that sense. So um, I want to turn the conversation and Magda, I want to bring you back in at this point, because I, I think that many of our listeners will feel, you know, fairly um, hopeless and, and a lot of despair when it comes to this particular um, uh, epidemic. Um, I know that I, whenever I turn on the the local news here in Boston, it seems almost every time I watch it, there is another story about a family that is dealing with a, a loved one who has um, who's been lost to this epidemic. And so, you know, I want to start to to switch back to start to talking about what has been done to mitigate this problem and. And what we know about the the strategies that have been tried and how effective they are. Um, so one of the things that we hear a fair bit about um, in terms of trying to deal with this particular problem has been regulating the prescription uh, opioid supply. I know that family members of mine have actually who have um, needed uh, medication have actually found that they in some cases can't actually access the the medicines that they need because doctors are. Um, either afraid to or, or unable to prescribe some of them. So can you talk a little bit about what's being done in, 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 that, in the regulation area and what else we know about what's working? Yeah, so there's been a lot done. A lot of the focus, I think, of the response has been on regulating access to prescription opioids. And that's taken many forms. Uh, so for example, uh, Uh, prescribing guidelines for physicians about when and how much they should be prescribing opioids and to whom, Uh, particular regulations for pain clinics. So what Noah was talking about, you know, trying to really prevent this issue of uh, pill mills by trying to put more stringent regulations on those clinics that are really focused on managing pain. Uh, 
there's also been some efforts to every state at this point has adopted what, what are called prescription drug monitoring programs. And so these are databases that, for example, a physician can check if a patient comes in and says, I, uh, I need you to prescribe me an opioid. The physician can actually check the database and see, well, has the, does this person have a current prescription for an opioid? That is, does, does it make sense for me to, to be prescribing an opioid to this person at this time? Uh, so th those are some of the ways. Uh, other ways are really trying to change the pills themselves. Uh, so for example, oxycodone was reformulated so that people couldn't tamper with it. They, that is, they couldn't smash it, snort it, inject it. And so the, the hope there was really to, to prevent the misuse uh, of oxycodone. Uh, the, the evidence is still quite uh, preliminary about what we know about what works, but from what we know, it seems that particularly these regulations trying to control uh, pain management clinics have been, uh, seem to be quite promising in terms of reducing inappropriate prescribing and reducing overdose deaths. Also, these uh, prescription drug monitoring programs, these databases that physicians can check, uh, seem to be having an impact in terms of reducing inappropriate prescribing and potentially also having a small effect on the, the risk of overdoses. So there are some things there that are working uh, to particularly uh, reduce prescription opioid overdoses. And we are seeing that overdoses related to prescription opioids are leveling off. Yeah, I mean, it does make me wonder though whether we're, we're attacking the right problem. Mm -hmm. If I understood correctly from what, what Noah was saying that the, the, the problem really has shifted and it isn't so much an issue of prescription uh, drugs nearly as much now as it is the, the street drugs, the illegal drugs. And I'm curious whether there's been any unintended consequences from these uh, tighter regulation of prescription opioids. That is, does it, does it, does it shift people into um, the, uh, the street drugs? That's a great question. And I think potentially it has contributed to the shift to other drugs, right? So the, the concern is as people were, were cut off from prescription opioids, as it became uh, more difficult to access prescription opioids, they became more expensive. Uh, did people shift into other illegal drugs, like for example, heroin and then synthetics? And there's some evidence to suggest that that may have happened, particularly, um, you know, with the reformulation of OxyContin uh, that made it tamper resistance, there's some data to suggest that that did indeed decrease the abuse of OxyContin, but it may have contributed to a transition to heroin. And we've seen subsequently increases in hepatitis C that are associated with heroin use. So uh, at the same time, and I think this likely happens with all types of policies for all types of diseases, right? You try to do something to address one part of the problem and you end up having some unintended consequences. Yeah, it seems like if we're not treating the underlying problem that, uh, you know, we're, we're going to end up with some of these unintended consequences, as you say. What it, I'm curious about, um, so I mentioned that, that, you know, I have a, a family member who, who was, you know, had surgery and needed um, some of these opioids and was able to get them for, for you know, for the short-term use. But um, for any longer-term pain management, there was a lot of concern by, by the providers around prescribing them. So is there a sense that we, we've gone too far at all in making access uh, so limited? Yeah, there's definitely a concern. And so there's two types of concerns there. Uh, first, the concern about uh, people not being able to receive opioids when it's actually medically indicated for them to receive them, right? So for example, after surgery, 
right? Uh, for acute pain uh, or uh, for, for cancer patients, right? So there are certainly cases where it's medically indicated and we don't want to swing the pendulum too far, right? And deny them access. Uh, there's also the concern about what do we do about people who've been using these opioids for a long time, right? And they've, they've become dependent on them. So we can't just one day, from one day to the next, say you can't have them anymore, right? You can imagine that that's gonna to lead to a lot of problems, very serious problems of cravings and withdrawal uh, and, and potentially shifted to other types of drugs. So, so a huge question that I think we're grappling with now is how do we taper these people off opioids in a way that's actually safe? And, and more broadly, how do we address the serious problem of chronic pain? You know, I think that's something that we don't, quite understand how to deal with. Uh, one thing that I, but that I really do want to highlight though, is that new evidence is coming out that opioids are actually not an effective way to treat pain. Mm. Uh, so, so new studies have, have suggested that, uh, that lab studies that opioids actually do not uh, address the pain receptors and effectively treat pain. Uh, so the answer might actually not be opioids. And so another thing that we really need to keep in mind is what other alternatives do we have for effective treatment of pain, right? And so, uh, so for example, uh, you know, there's, there's some evidence that physical therapy, that potentially mindfulness training, uh, other, other ways might be uh, effective ways to treat pain. And so particularly as we think about the, the access to alternative treatments and the role that insurance companies play in this, thinking about providing ways for people to actually be able to afford and access alternative uh, ways to treat pain is really important. Um, so that's, it's so interesting. And one of the things that you hear people talk about when they talk about alternatives to opioids, I, I, I was not familiar that, with the idea that the opioids may not actually be treating the pain very well. But one thing that you do hear about is, is marijuana, particularly in the conversations around marijuana legalization. I know that the National Football League is considering whether or not to allow marijuana use because they uh, do deal with issues around uh, excessive opioid use. And I'm I'm curious um, what you think that expanded access to marijuana is 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 or will do for the opioid epidemic. Yeah, so there is this idea that uh, that it, that people might use marijuana to treat pain rather than opioids, either choose to use marijuana instead of opioids altogether, or that they might choose to substitute opioids for marijuana when opioids become more difficult to access. Uh, I think the, the evidence on whether marijuana is effective at treating pain is still, you know, very much in the early stages. Uh, but there is some evidence, uh, particularly from state level studies, that states that legalized marijuana did experience a reduction in both prescribing of opioids and overdoses related to opioids. There's also some reports from people who started to use marijuana instead of opioids and they, they, they say that it's effective. Uh, but, I, but all of this evidence is relatively modest and, um, and, and it's also unclear, particularly with these policy studies that evaluate the impact of marijuana legalization, it's unclear was it marijuana legalization that led to, to changes in opioid prescribing or overdoses, or was it that the same studies that the same states that legalized marijuana also enacted a whole host of other types of policies to try to regulate opioid prescribing, right? And so I think we need to, to figure that out more uh, because if, if this, you know, if this is an alternative, it's obviously a lot safer 
than opioids. People are not going to die from using marijuana. They're not going to overdose from it. So, so another area that, that at least, um, I, I, I guess I can't say for sure how commonly people know about it, but it's certainly as somebody who works um, at, a, at a medical center but does nothing related to uh, understanding the opioid epidemic, but something you hear a lot about is is naloxone, the drug naloxone, as a as a way of um, combating the epidemic. And I have to admit, I do I do um, worry that all the attention on this this drug naloxone is is about uh, dealing with the symptom and not the the cause. But but I I think that many of our listeners may not may may have some misconceptions about what naloxone is. So can you can you give us a sense for what what this is, how it works, and then you know who who uses who's able to access this, and does it actually work? Yeah, so naloxone is what's called an opioid antagonist. So it's used to counter the effects of an opioid overdose. So how it works is that it counters the depression of the central nervous system and the respiratory system, um, allowing an overdose victim to breathe normally, right? Because the way that uh, opioids work is that they, they cause a depression of the central nervous system, the respiratory system that can actually be life-threatening. Uh, the, the, the good thing is that it only works if people have opioid, opioids in their system and there's no potential to abuse naloxone. So I think that's really important to keep in mind. The other thing is that it can be administered with adequate training by minimally trained people. It can be administered by anyone, by you, by me, by anyone. Uh, and so uh, because of that, there's been a real push uh, starting in 2017 for states to make uh, naloxone more available and to you know, increase public access to naloxone. Um, so for example, uh, in more than 25 states, there's these laws called standing order laws uh, where the state medical director gives a written order to allow doctors or pharmacists to distribute naloxone without needing a specific prescription. And so the hope there is that uh, in that way, it will be much easier for people to access naloxone. I think one of the, you know, one of the goals that, that people seem to have now is for naloxone to actually be just available over the counter, just like aspirin would be available. Um, and at the same time, for people who receive an opioid prescription to at the same time that they receive an opioid prescription, they receive naloxone. So that, again, uh, when, it, when and if an overdose happens, naloxone is actually available to be able to prevent uh, that overdose from becoming fatal. And how, how effective is naloxone? And when I, when I ask that question, I mean both sort of how effective is it if it's actually administered to somebody who is experiencing an overdose, but also how effective is the idea of, of getting more people to carry and, and be trained to administer naloxone, how effective is that at actually you know, reducing the number of overdoses? Yeah, so the effectiveness of naloxone depends on the potency of, uh, of the drug. Uh, so for example, while one dose of naloxone might work to counter the effects of prescription opioids, several doses might be needed to counter the effects of fentanyl, right? Uh, but, but in general, it does seem to be effective, uh, particularly if administered within the first four to five minutes uh, after an overdose has occurred. In terms of increasing access to naloxone, I think that's a huge challenge right now. Um, so, you know, one of the main targets for access has been first responders uh, so that they can be trained to administer it in an emergency. Uh, but 
unfortunately, many times overdoses actually happen in places uh, where naloxone is unavailable and where first responders are too late, right? So we know that the average response time for first responders is 9.4 minutes. And so if you think about you know, an overdose becoming fatal in the first four to five minutes, uh, you can see that that's uh, a problem. Uh, so the push right now is again to be to make naloxone available over the counter so that we can have more people, more lay people, people who, who are using opioids, their friends, their family, be able to access it. Okay, so Noah, turning to um to this issue of, of uh, how we deal with this problem. We focused so far on how to deal with people, um, how, how to deal with situations where somebody actually has overdose. But um, how do we, what do we know about effective treatment for people who are um, experiencing opioid use disorders? So yes, the, the good news is that we actually have very effective treatments for opioid use disorder. Uh, we actually have three different FDA-approved medication for, for opioid use disorder, and those are methadone, buprenorphine, which is often known from its uh, brand name, Suboxone, as well as long-acting injectable naltrexone, which is also often known by its brand name, which is Vivitrol. And these are all effective at reducing opioid use, as well as reducing risk of overdose. So... Um, methadone and buprenorphine, those first two drugs I mentioned that are known as opioid agonists, those really have the most evidence about their effectiveness. Um, they've been available for many years and we really have long, um, long time studies that show that they're effective not only in helping people stay in treatment, reducing illicit opioid use, um, reducing overdose risk, but also improving other functional outcomes as well as um, improved behaviors and, and reduced risk for HIV and HCV transmission. So compared to behavioral treatments, for example, so counseling and other kind of behavioral therapies that don't involve medications, um, these have been shown to be much more effective in all of these outcomes. Um, and the way that they work is that um, they actually bind to the same opioid receptors in the brain that elicit and pain reliever opioids do. And what they do is they ameliorate the withdrawal and craving symptoms that people with opioid addiction experience. And at the same time, they don't overstimulate this reward system. So they don't actually generate euphoria. They really allow a person to really stabilize without the negative aspects of um, not using the opioids that they are dependent on. So unfortunately, the bad news is that even though there's all this evidence for these treatments, they're not actually very available in this country. So we know that with all substance use disorders, there's a big gap between people who have uh, these conditions and people who actually seek treatment. But what's interesting is that even among those people who do seek treatment for opioid disorder, most actually don't receive treatment that involves these medications. And even among people who do receive them, they don't stay in treatment as recommended. So these medications really work as maintenance medications, which means you have to keep taking them uh, daily and for long periods of time in order for them to really remain effective. This is similar to something like insulin, where a person that has diabetes has to continuously take their insulin every day in order to manage their condition. Um, and we know from studies that even as many as 60 to 70% of people who enter treatment for opioid use disorder only receive therapies that don't involve these medications. Uh, and many 
treatment facilities, probably most treatment facilities in the US don't actually even offer these medications. So this is a big, uh, big problem. Um, and of course, not all groups are equally affected by this uh, gap in treatment. Um, certain risk groups, including people who are in the criminal justice system, younger people, or people who live in more remote areas that don't have many medication treatment programs are much less likely to actually receive these medications. It seems like a, an absolutely huge problem, and I'm so surprised to learn this. And I'm, I'm, you know, um, curious as to whether we know anything about why this is, why these programs uh, don't or can't provide medications that seem highly effective. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a really good question, and it's a concern that um, is being recognized more and more in the field. And I kind of uh, describe uh, the barriers to these medications as having three primary components. So the first one is is really regulatory and financial hurdles that lead um, many programs to not. Uh, be able to offer these medications. So for example, um, in order to prescribe buprenorphine, you actually have to have a special waiver as a physician, um, which means you have to go through a special training in order to be able to prescribe buprenorphine. So this is something that you can imagine um, makes less physicians likely to have this waiver and therefore not able to actually treat people with opioid use disorder. Um, so one way, for example, that people in the public health sphere are working to address this, um, this issue is that there are ongoing campaigns to actually try and eliminate this waiver. So have really any physician who's trained in medicine be able to prescribe these medications just in the way that any regular physician is able to actually prescribe prescription pain relievers, for example. Another big issue, though, is that we really have a shortage of providers who really even feel comfortable or are willing to prescribe these medications, even, um, even if they do have access to this type of waiver. So um, as we've described, a lot of the opioid problems that we're seeing are happening in areas that are not really trained in dealing with opioid addiction. They haven't historically seen high rates of opioid use. Um, and so now there's a lot of work to really have states improve their workforce um, through things like incentivizing providers to treat opioid addiction with medications, um, as well as really integrating these trainings into regular medical education, as well as residency programs. Um, but one really, which I find to be the largest issue is actually the stigma and ideological resistance that exists um, against these yeah. medication treatments. So um, in the substance use treatment field, we often think about um, being in recovery or treatment from substance use disorders as um, only really effective if people are abstinent from drug use. And often there's a confusion that continuing to take a medication uh, like methadone or buprenorphine actually means that somebody isn't drug free. And there's this really big misconception that um, taking these medications is replacing one drug for another, replacing one addiction for another, um, even though they're very, very effective in actually making people return to stability, um, be able to hold um, jobs, be able to really maintain good relationships. Um, and it really looks nothing like people who are actually in the throes of addiction. Um, and as we mentioned, you wouldn't think of this kind of stigma against medication as existing in other fields of medicine in the same way. Um, so imagine people said that somebody with diabetes um, wasn't actually um, in treatment because they had to continuously take 
insulin every day. Nobody would ever say you have to stop taking your insulin to really be uh, treating your diabetes well. Um, so we're really working to address this stigma both through education, media campaigns, really trying to um, help people understand how effective these medications are and their benefits to people um, who have opioid use disorder. Amazing. So um, I think the, the last area I want to talk about um, that I think you know, gets a lot of attention but also seems to be quite controversial um, is this idea of supervised injection facilities. So um, this, this seems to be something that is particularly relevant at the moment, given that there was uh, a recent ruling that a supervised injection facility in Philadelphia was not in violation of federal <laughs> law. Um, but I, I also think people don't necessarily know uh, all about these, this approach. So Magda, can you tell us a little bit about what the, what these, this approach is and why it's so controversial? Yeah, so supervised injection sites are places that uh, provide injection drug users with clean needles to inject. And they also provide a safe space to use drugs where, uh, and it's a safe space where there's actually trained staff on hand uh, that are available to respond to potential overdoses, to respond and to, uh, to uh, avert uh, you know, bad outcomes. And also at the same time as they're providing them with clean needles, they're you know, providing access to naloxone, an adequate response to potential risk. They're also providing them with information about treat, uh, options for treating um, drug, uh, opioid use disorder and uh, information about other health and social services that they may access. Um, there's currently, across the world, there's currently at least 100 supervised injection facilities across Europe, Canada, and the U.S. In the U uh, uh, sorry, Europe, Canada, and Australia. And in the U.S., there's at least 12 cities that are considering putting in and legalizing safe injection facilities. Um, but the controversy really in the United States lies around this idea about whether the safe injection sites are, uh, are, in a, are you in a way condoning or facilitating the presence of illegal drug dens. Uh, and from a legal perspective, the argument has been by the US government that uh, maintaining these premises for the purposes of using drugs is illegal under federal law. Um, so there's this concern both, you know, at a, a popular level that it's going to normalize drug use, that it's going to create these illegal drug dens, and then also that it's illegal. Do we, and do we know uh, whether or not these approaches are effective at, at you know, reducing deaths and uh, eventually transitioning people off these medications, of these drugs? Yeah, so uh, from the evidence that we know, uh, there's evidence uh, from you know, research done particularly in Canada and Australia, some in Europe as well. And so from that research, uh, we know that uh, with the statement of these safe injection sites, the number of fatal overdoses around, the fatal, around these sites actually decreased. So in the areas where there, where there were sites instated, there was a decrease in fatal overdoses. There was also a decrease in ambulance dispatches for overdoses. Uh, very important to, to keep in mind, there's also no evidence that there was an increase uh, in deaths uh, around facilities. Um, 
risky behaviors such as needle sharing, reuse of needles, needle litter actually decreased with the instatement of these facilities. So it seems like actually risky behavior and the bad outcomes that you'd expect actually decreased with the instatement of these facilities. And, you know, another fear that people might have is about crime, right? So if we, if we open these facilities up, is that going to create crime around the area? Uh, but actually, uh, from the evaluations of existing facilities, there's no evidence that there's been any increase in crime, including drug trafficking. Um, at the same time, you know, it really does away with, you know, when you have a big problem of drug use in a community, uh, you have the, the concern about people using it outside, uh, people littering with needles outside, right? And, and that creating a convening point for crime. And in fact, what, what we're seeing with this research is that with these facilities, you actually do away with a lot of those risks. That are that that exist in the highly affected neighborhoods. That's fantastic, and it definitely seems like an area that that needs more attention. Um, so I want to end with a with a couple of big picture uh, thoughts from you both on this. Um, no, let me start with you. So, um, can you tell us what what you think are some of the more challenging aspects of of studying and and dealing with the opioid epidemic and and in particular, can you focus on what you see as um, some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about this problem? Yeah, so there are so many challenges <laughs> to studying um, this area. But if I, if I had to choose one, I really come back to this issue of stigma. Um, so we have seen that the growing impact of opioids on whiter and more wealthier communities in the U.S. over the last couple of decades, I think this has really shifted our perspective on opioid use from one that was largely demonized and seen as a criminal problem uh, to one where really generally addiction has become uh, something to be understood as a medical condition that should be treated with health care um, and with public health responses to an extent. But we still see that stigma is very incessant in every aspect of the research that we do, as well as the public health responses to address the opioid crisis. So any effective intervention like the ones that we discussed today, so anything ranging from treatment to naloxone availability to safe consumption facilities, every single one has been met with stark resistance um, even though they all have a lot of evidence for their effectiveness and reducing opioid risks. Um, and there's really this fundamental view of addiction as being a moral failing and something where people are still viewing drug use as something that is a person's choice and therefore own responsibility to get themselves out of it. And I think this is really behind a lot of the issues that we see in trying to improve this condition. Um, and another piece of this is that despite that we talk about opioid use as being a disease, opioid use and illicit opioid use in particular is still criminal. Um, it's a criminal act by law. So this makes it highly criminalized legally. This stigmatizes it more. It makes persons um, much more reluctant to share information with researchers, for example. And it also makes people reluctant to access services in fear of retaliation. So you can imagine a lot of our interventions, as Magda mentioned, are um, are focused on criminal justice involved populations that are highly affected by this epidemic. And yet, criminal justice system is not necessarily the most natural place to, to provide treatment to really um, improve services because that's not what it's meant to do. And yet because of the criminality of opioid use, it's really become um, very inflated into the system. In terms of misconceptions, um, I think I, really the, the misconception about treatment, about medications, treatment, um, 
you know, over and over again, I can't tell you how many times a day I see news articles that still talk about these medications as being something that, you know, we want to get off of as soon as possible. Um, that really, that, that's not the, the end point that people really want to be drug free. Um, even though it's really the best tool we have out there for preventing opioid uh, overdose in the long term. Uh, we just recently conducted a study that showed that people who are on medications um, were as much as 80% less likely to overdose um, while in that kind of treatment compared to treatments that didn't involve medication. So really, um, I, if I had to have one point really come through is that these medications are very effective um, if taken in the long term. Fantastic. So Magda, let me, let me end with you then. So can you kind of give us the, the big picture on where you see things going? I mean, if you had to guess where we'll be five years from now in terms of the opioid ep epidemic, is there, are you optimistic? Um, you know, do we have tools available to us to, to deal with this problem? Yeah, I think there is room for optimism. So particularly in the last year, we've started to see a decrease in overdose deaths. So I think that that gives us great hope, uh, particularly deaths around prescription opioids. Uh, at the same time, however, there, we are continuing to see an increase in deaths related to overdoses from synthetic opioids like fentanyl. And as Noah mentioned at the beginning, an increase in overdoses uh, involving stimulants like cocaine and methamphetamines. Uh, so I think, you know, the, the nature of the epidemic is really going to start, continue to evolve in the next five years. And I foresee that we're really starting to enter this fourth wave that's really not so much about opioids anymore, but it's, a, it's around polydrug use, right? The use of, of multiple drugs like stimulants uh, combined with opioids and other drugs. Uh, at the same time, I am still hopeful because I think we've been able to, to make some structural changes uh, with the response to the opioid crisis that I hope will really have a lasting impact uh, to other types of drug problems that emerge. And that's really around this concerted investment uh, that states and the federal government have made to address this problem. And the, the increasing collaboration that seems to exist across sectors, right? So health, public health working together uh, with law enforcement, uh, with criminal justice, uh, with social services, really trying all of these sectors that traditionally were really quite siloed, potentially uh, enemies of each other, uh, but how you've really seen them come together in these highly affected communities to work together to address this problem. So I think we really set the systems in place to be able to, to respond uh, to future problems. And I really hope, uh, and, I, and I think what success would really look like is that we really learn from this problem by setting up the, the data systems and the prevention and treatment systems in place uh, that will allow us to not only respond to the current opioid crisis, but respond to future problems. Well, that's fantastic. And it's great that we're, we're ending on a positive note. So let's leave things there. I wanna, I wanna thank you both for, for joining us on this episode because I think it was a really, really fascinating and enlightening conversation. Um, we'd also like to thank Sue Bevan for producing the show. And before we go, if you are an epidemiologist, I would very, very strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which will be in June right here in beautiful sunny Boston. Uh, it also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. That's epiresearch.org. 
We really appreciate you listening and we'll be back with another episode soon.